<laughs> Quit out, Ghost Island Media. Last year, I helped my dad install solar panels in San Diego. I was so excited, I went out to go take a picture, and one of the technicians looks to me concerned and says, What's wrong? Is everything okay? <clears throat> so I've been living in Taiwan, where solar panels are actually quite exciting. You don't see them everywhere. Solar panels used to be a risky business. It was a shiny new toy. Expensive, rare, turning the power of the sun into electricity. But now it's just common, mainstream. And apparently, it's boring. One in seven American homes are expected to have solar panels by 2030. That's boring. Solar will just be like a washing machine. So what happened? Hi, this is Waste Not, Why Not, a sustainability podcast from Ghost Island Media. I'm Nature Nate, a sustainability consultant based in Taiwan, working on energy, ocean, and waste. Today, we look at two very shiny things, solar panels and money. If you really think about renewable energy, it's not a technology product, it's a financial product. That's Calvin Cheng, co-founder of Pacific Green Energy, PGE, a solar developer in the growing renewable scene in Taiwan. Calvin tells us that solar is becoming more mainstream here. It's slowly becoming more mainstream accepted as something that the country needs to do. When I first got into it in Taiwan, people's mentality was like, oh, renewable energy is too expensive. Taiwan's not suitable to do it. Now it's more like people kind of understand that this is something we need to do to keep up our competitive edge. Competitive edge. Calvin is talking about the global pledge for renewable energy. You might have heard of them before, RE100. We had them on our show. So when Apple, an American company, made its pledge to use 100% renewable electricity, it meant that its global suppliers must also participate. And who's a major supplier to Apple? That would be TSMC, the semiconductor giant, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And when TSMC signed their pledge in 2020, it meant that all of its suppliers must now also buy renewables. You see where this is going. Apple sets a target for its supply chain. That triggers this massive company to set a target and trigger their supply chain. But there's not enough renewable energy in Taiwan yet. All the clean energy as of 2020, solar, biomass, wind, geothermal, tidal, that's only 5% of Taiwan's energy. Taiwan wants to boost that number to 20% by 2025, but that's in like three years. That's a big gap. And you may be wondering, why solar? Why are we going to talk about solar today? Well, solar is now, in some places in the world, the cheapest form of energy ever, even cheaper than coal and oil with fossil fuel subsidies. And that's why, really, everyone's going after solar. It's cheap energy you can throw up anywhere. You don't have to worry about noise. You don't have to worry about offending your neighbors. It's just a bunch of flat panels you put on a roof somewhere or in a field. Compared to other types of energy, solar is inoffensive, inexpensive, easy to set up, did I mention it's cheap? Fun fact, Taiwan was an early manufacturer of the world's solar panels, before they were cheap. Taiwan in the early 2000s, in terms of solar manufacturing for like solar cells and solar modules, we were probably the leading country in the world. We were doing most of the solar cell manufacturing at that time. But then how come Taiwan didn't deploy them at home until recently? Calvin points to one obvious factor, high cost. So what's going to drive down these costs? Better policy. And what influences policy? Waste not, why not, listeners? You already know this. Public awareness and education. 
And Calvin agrees. He's even literally bringing solar panels to school campuses and showing students why solar panels are important. So every school that we're going into right now, we're offering free one class per semester. We have a whole education program for elementary school, middle school, and high school. Let's us help you guys educate them a little bit about some of these sustainability issues, some of these renewable energy issues that we're facing. But this stuff takes time. For clean energy to be the norm and the boring, the public needs to want it. The government needs to make it easy to have. And the market needs to be able to afford it. The policies that Taiwan has now to support solar are similar to what the U.S. had 10 years ago. But it takes time to build up an economy of scale to make a really efficient solar installation and solar development market. Solar developers like Calvin weren't always able to secure financing easily. Up until 2017, it was effectively illegal for private companies to build their own renewable energy. Taiwan's made a lot of progress in a short period of time, and it's natural to be frustrated, but it does take time to build up an entirely new energy sector. These things take time. So actually right now there's a lot of support from the banks, and an interest rate is actually quite low in Taiwan. I can get financing in Taiwan about like 2%. I mean, if you really think about renewable energy, it's not a technology product, it's a financial product. Renewable energy, it's not a technology product, it's a financial product. Let's talk about that. Investing in renewables used to be risky, but now it's risky not to invest in solar and renewables. So to look at how this has shifted, we set out to look for an investor who can shine some light on the solar industry. Pun intended. Our ideal investor is active in solar right now. They come from the world of banking or private equity and first saw this as a high-risk product. How does such an investor see solar today versus 20 years ago when the sector was just starting out? We found Mark Uwe, an American investor who helps companies invest in booming industries. He comes with a list of brand name firms, Morgan Stanley in New York and Hong Kong, Oak Tree Capital Management in California, Sequoia Heritage of Sequoia, and now Redwood Oak Capital. I think he likes trees. He also teaches at the business school at Northwestern University in the U.S. Play the tape. Ka-ching, ka-ching. So I've been uh, mainly an investor, started on Wall Street back in the mid-90s, and then moved on to various private equity firms, Oak Tree Capital Management, and then Sequoia Capital. So I would say most of my life has been spent investing institutional capital in a various range of industries. Okay. And throughout your investment career, before we go on to talk about clean tech, clean investing, what's the craziest pitch you've ever received? You ever received like just like a totally crazy idea? So certainly if I think of some of the crazier ones, when cryptocurrencies just came out and it's literally like, hey, can you give me some real money so I can give you some paper and a code, you know, a 26 line of numbers and letters. That's really how it started. The very first crypto investors had to believe that vision when Bitcoin was a dollar. So you were really early days. Pretty early. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Look at it now. Let's dial back the clock. The scene is 1996. You first entered investment banking. And for those at home, we were still using dial-ups to connect to the internet. In the U.S., we were getting ready to send our first Mars rover into space. So, Mark, it's 1996. You just got your MBA from Northwestern, and you're starting your job with Morgan Stanley in New York City. What are your hopes and dreams? Yeah, that's exactly right. That was quite a long time ago. You know, at the time, I was a young man on Wall Street. I was, like, ready to conquer the world. The world is your oyster. (laughs) It's a little bit of a grind working on Wall Street as a junior person. 
But I was exposed to a lot of different things, a lot of different CEOs, industries. I traveled a lot. I started in New York, and then Morgan Stanley sent me out to Asia in 97 to work in the Hong Kong office. So it gave me a lot of opportunities just to see how business is done really all over the world. And what were people investing in back then? What was kind of the main focus of investments, the banking that you were doing? Yeah, I was doing uh, primarily banking or M&A, mergers and acquisitions. And then I was also investing in real estate. They called it the Morgan Stanley Real Estate Funds. Okay. And during that time, did energy come up? Was anyone talking about solar, wind, anything related to the climate? No. Not no. yet. <laughs> Power generation at the time was more traditional. Mm. So if you had investments, it would be investing into a natural gas generation facility mm. or drilling for maybe natural gas or oil. Very little clean tech at the time. That's kind of crazy to think about. Was there anything that you heard? Were there any whispers? Was there any clue that this was going to kind of explode over the next 10 to 15 years into the sector that it's starting to look like today? Not at all. Wow. At least what I was doing at the time. Really, almost zero. When did it first come up on your radar? Probably in the 2010 time frame. Okay, not till much, much later. Much later, yeah. After Inconvenient Truth came out. Yeah, exactly. And um, from an investing standpoint, it just wasn't something that people were focused on. What, what is in your mind the reason for that? Was it just not a compelling business model? Was there just not a lot on the ground yet? What prevented it from being an investment at that time? Well, certainly at the time, there was no, I'll call it social agenda on the environment, mm. on clean energy. You know, in the mid-90s or even 2000, everybody was more worried about Y2K and <laughs> your computer not blowing up. Yeah, that was then. the great global crisis back then, crisis of the internet. Yeah. No one was really thinking about clean energy. There was no opportunities to invest. I think also the technology wasn't there, right? Solar panels mm. really weren't around. Pretty low efficiency. They were taking them off the White House. Maybe wind was starting a little bit. Some hydroelectric plants were available. Mm. So that was a shift 15 plus years ago. Power generation was dominated by coal-fired generation facilities. Right. That moved to natural gas, which was already a lot cleaner. Yeah, that was the first clean tech investment. My job at Sequoia was a little bit more broad. We were investing in a bunch of different things. Whereas when I was at Oak Tree or Morgan Stanley, I was more focused on real estate mm. and uh, including energy. So we called it natural resources. But again, even 2010, the opportunities in natural resources or energy was still more traditional, meaning mm. drilling for oil in Texas, drilling for natural gas in Pennsylvania. Shale boom. Shales, correct. Mm. And that was also with some new technology where they discovered fracking, right? And they realized underneath the U.S. there's actually huge natural gas farms or deposits. Yeah. I think in the environmental world, most people wouldn't link the natural gas boom as sort of like this precursor to the clean tech wave. But was was there anything that you saw in that sort of cleaner tech era that would then later go on to inform solar renewables and what yeah. we think of now as clean tech? Yeah. 
So definitely during that time, I'd say 2010 onwards, you saw more business plans specifically relating to clean tech. Hmm. So I know that uh, various VC firms actually made investments into solar, including Sequoia, Coastal Ventures was another big one. They were probably a little bit too early. Hmm. And as an investor, when you say you're too early, it usually means, you know, you might have the right instinct, but one, the market's not ready to adopt. Mm. And two, usually the costs are still too high. So if you're too early, you put in your money, it's too costly, and you can't get your return on investment in time, basically. Correct. Correct. Translating for non-money people. Yep. So for instance, solar panels were being put on homes, but they were forecasting it would take you 20 years or something like that to recoup your money in saved utility wow. bills. Now that same system, you know, you can probably install for half that cost, maybe even less, maybe a quarter. Mm. So all of a sudden you're recuperating your investment in under 10 years. Maybe it's five to 10 years. Maybe you kind of break even on the cost in 20 years or something like that. Exactly. And you get to be a bit cool. Yeah. um, But it's not going to get everybody into the space. It's certainly not going to get enough interest for us to scale renewable energy or solar to where it needs to be. That's right. The early users or adopters, I think breaking even is actually a great, great way to think about it, right? Okay, I'm doing a good thing. Over time, I might get my money back in savings, right? Because you, mm. you're spending less on your utility bill. That's sort of why you did it. It wasn't because, hey, I can make, make money. And uh, certainly from an investing standpoint, there were no opportunities, right? If I make an investment and I break even after 20 years, that, that's actually a bad investment. <laughs> so maybe it'd be a good time to talk about how do you make money on a solar investment? You sell electricity back to the grid or you save money on your electricity bill. How do you make money with, with solar? Yeah, it's a little bit complicated, but I guess the simplest way to think about it. Okay, so as an investor, it costs some money to build solar facilities and I focus on commercial, so I don't do residential. So it takes more money, bigger capital outlay at front. So solar farms can be, you know, $100 million, but I focus on malls, apartment buildings, commercial sites, small solar farms. So I'm putting solar on the University of Hawaii right now. So the University of Hawaii has agreed to buy the energy that my solar panels produce for a 20-year period. Normally, you buy that power from your local utility. And what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we're going to put solar on all your rooftops and parking structures. And you agree to buy that energy from us for 20 years. And the price that you pay us for that energy is at the start a little bit lower than what you'd be paying Hawaiian Electric Company. And they're buying clean energy. And so for the university standpoint, that's kind of a win-win. So if it costs me $100 to put solar panels on the University of Hawaii, the University of Hawaii will pay me $10 a year, let's say, for that power. So on my $100, I'm making 10% return on my investment. And that's good enough for people to be interested in that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's, you know, gets a little more complicated with, with banks. And so when you put an energy deal together, you have to look at who's going to buy it from you, mm. right? 
So, you don't want someone that's going to go out of business in right. two or three years, right. or they're running some kind of weird illegal company in a that's factory. Right. That's right. So for a state like Hawaii, you're pretty certain that the sun will shine X amount of days per year. Right. And you can then calculate with very high accuracy today how much your solar panels will produce in energy in kilowatts, but you can predict that with pretty high accuracy. So are there data tools? How do you predict that? Yeah, actually, it's really interesting. So for instance, like say Phoenix, it's in the desert, a lot of sun, you know, there's very accurate data on average over the past 50 years, how many days of sun Phoenix gets per year. Right. Then there's a second company that they will actually look at your specific building. Okay, so for solar, um, shade is is bad for solar. You want as much direct right. sunlight, right? So if you have a— No clouds, no trees. Yeah. So trees. So clouds you can't control, but trees you, you can kind of control, right? Mm. So now they can get into the, the level of detail where they can look at a property mm. and to say, hey, this property is in an area that has a fair amount of trees above your roof line or where your solar panels are going to be built. So redwood trees in California, for instance, right, they grow to 80 feet, 100 feet. So if you're in an area that has a lot of redwood trees, they can look at your roof, how flat it is, how many trees are around, and calculate essentially how many days of sun those panels will get. Okay. So when you make money from solar, you save money from electricity, you can also sell it back to the grid. Is that really like a viable business opportunity or is it more about saving electricity costs? It depends a little bit on how you set up your solar system, I'll say. One is called net metering. So mm. home is a perfect example, right? Let's say you have a solar panel on your home. There's days where you just don't use as much electricity. You're actually generating more from the solar panels on your home than you're using. Mm. In many cases, you can sell that back to the grid or to your utility at a pre-specified price. And really what that means is, your meter rolls backwards. If you produce more energy uh, through your solar panels than you used for that month, then um, they will say, okay, we'll buy back that energy mm. at a certain price. And then we have a different kind of solar system, which is called uh, feed-in tariff, feed-in tariff. Okay. That is when you specifically build a solar project to sell to the grid. To feed into the grid. To feed into the grid. Okay. Right. Okay. So it, it depends on what you want to do. So you can, if you have a large enough space, if the economics makes sense, you can feed it back into the grid. Otherwise, you're just compensating for your own electricity, which could make plenty of financial sense if you're a long-term institution or maybe you live in a jurisdiction with high electricity bills like California or Hawaii, and it makes sense to, to lock in a price. That's right. Exactly right. Okay. All right, let's take a break here. We've been talking to Mark Uy, a real estate and energy investor, managing partner at Redwood Coast Capital based in California. He's been giving us a solar energy investment 101 class. When we come back, Mark will tell us what made him start investing in clean energy. Hey guys, it's Emily Waiwu here. I produce Waste Not, Why Not? I want to give a big shout out to the American Institute in Taiwan, AIT who's supporting this mini-season you're now listening to. AIT, in addition to focusing on climate-related initiatives, is also very supportive of Taiwanese startups and entrepreneurship. And they take sustainability quite seriously. Their new campus in Taipei is LEED Silver Certified. 
And we have a whole full-length bonus video interview talking to the man who takes care of this green building at AIT. So after today's episode, head over to Ghost Island Media on YouTube and to the playlist Waste Not, Why Not. Now, back to Nate. Welcome back to Waste Not, Why Not. We've been talking to real estate and energy investor Mark Uwe. He spent the first half of his career seeing a lot of natural resources as early talks of energy. And then something changed. One day, some guy came up to him and said, Hey, are you looking to put some money to work? Mark said, Yeah. That's when the guy said, What do you think about clean energy? So you started Redwood Coast Capital in 2017, your own investment firm focusing on real estate, early stage technology, and clean energy. What was your first clean energy investment with with your new firm? Yeah, I started Redwood Coast, a little bit of the entrepreneurial bug that seems to go around in Silicon Valley came to me as well. Because of my background, I'd primarily be doing things like real estate and private equity. But as an investor, you have to really be open to the trends and mm. what is going to be whatever the next thing is, right? And yeah, clean energy, clean tech was becoming a bigger, bigger piece of just everyday life. I wasn't actively looking to do my first deal in clean energy, but uh, just through my network from Sequoia, I was introduced to a guy who just pitched me. He's like, hey, are you looking to put some money to work? I said, yeah. He's like, what do you think about clean energy? And my initial response was, well, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. You know, the people I know who invested in solar really didn't make that much money. Maybe they got their money back broke even, which is not, if you're an investor and you just break even, you will never survive. (laughs) That's not how you want to start out. Hey, I'm the guy breaking even. (laughs) That's right. That's right. But I had time to look at deals. My first deal was putting solar on an apartment building in Hawaii. Okay. You know, and I'm typically the capital partner, right? So I work with what I call an operating partner, but they're the folks that are sort of boots on the ground who put the deal together. But they were putting solar on a pretty large apartment complex in Hawaii, I think 300 units, something like that. At the time, I'd never really, that that really was my first uh, exposure to something like this. And so I would say I made the investment a little bit based on the people, Hmm. not not necessarily the, the numbers or the project partly because I just wasn't all that experienced in investing in solar specifically. Just I just never, you know, never really done a deal like that. So when it's your first deal, part of your judgment is on the people that are going mm. to execute, you know, your dollars. What was it about them? Was it just, you know, their, their track record, their charisma, their, was it just like a gut feeling? So one of the things I think that I have been able to pick up in 20 plus years in investing is identifying good people. Every investment has an opportunity to lose money, but you want to back people that no matter what, they feel that they're stewards of your money, right? So that's how it started. That was 2017. I came in sort of when the project needed construction funding. So they had all the permits and all the contracts were signed and needed some money to actually build Mm. the project. And then once it was up and running, it was producing energy for the tenants. We were able to refinance out the whole project with a traditional bank and I was able to get repaid. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a lot easier of a conclusion than I thought. Yeah. (laughs) I thought you'd still be like getting a check every month or something. No, I just didn't know if they were going to be in business 13 years from now. 
So by design, I actually wanted to get paid back within one or two, a year and a half. So I structured it so that I was able to get my money back when the project was complete. Mm. What were some lessons you learned from that first project? I think the other interesting thing was just how the capital markets are structured around that. So how does a bank look at a solar project? Mm. So what I learned was the banks actually don't like to do the construction part of solar. Partly it's because it's not built, right? So if, if they're going to lend capital, they usually need to have some certainty that it's going to get built and then that people will start paying for the energy. Mm. And this is a kind of common thing in real estate. Banks generally don't like to take what I call construction risk. But hmm. once a project is complete and finished, whether it's an office building or an apartment building or a solar panel system, once it's up and running and you can see, hey, this thing is generating electricity and there's contracts that says whether it's a university or a power company or the tenants of this apartment building that they are legitimately going to be buying the energy that you produce. Once that is up and running, then the banks jump in right away. Oh, it works? Yeah. yeah. We're happy to it help. It works? Yeah. Then, uh, great. We can lend you whatever. It's like a normal business loan or real estate loan. So the two main lessons were you need the utility involved and the bank's come in too, but they come in at the end. Yeah. So there's an opportunity for me to invest in the construction piece of this development chain or this development pipeline, which then drove almost the next eight deals. Mm. And because the banks were hesitant to lend in the construction part, meaning that there was not that much capital to do the actual construction, I could charge a little bit more for my money mm. because there were not many options that developers had to actually borrow money or get access to money for the construction piece. And so that was one of your first projects. Does it still have that dynamic today? How, how have your solar projects changed since, since that first one? They're getting bigger. So now I've done a portfolio of solar in the city of L.A., L.A. Department of Water and Power. Mm. We've done maybe five or six projects that are now powering the L.A. city grid. But again, on most of my deals now, my projects are bigger, but they're structured pretty the same, mm. meaning I really just do the development piece of it. Then once it's done, I get paid back through a refinancing from usually just a more what I call traditional lender. So you're just kind of bridging that gap in the project. Yeah. And are other institutions, are there companies moving in to fill that gap? So I'm bridging that gap because there was not much capital for that gap. Now there's just the market's more proven. There's more deals that have gotten done. Electrifying or clean energy is just becoming a commonplace. So more investors are going in. The banks are getting smarter. Some banks now are starting to say, hey, you know what? I see all these deals getting done on LA DWP with uh, University of Hawaii, Long Beach Convention Center. They're all done now. Mm -hmm. And they're like, hmm, you know, I can actually finance those construction pieces with these partners or these this team because they've done, I don't know, let's say 10 of these now all seem to have worked out okay. So the market is maturing or evolving. Okay. So you just said that investment in clean energy didn't really start until five or six years ago. What happened in those five or six years that led to, to this now growing industry? 
between the last five to 10 years, maybe we've seen a lot more awareness, right? So simple things like climate change. So I kind of live in California. We used to have wildfires every five or 10 years. A rare event. A rare event is now every year, right? So I think because it's hitting people directly now in their backyard, so to speak, particularly in the U.S., that one has brought people more aware about what's going on Mm. with climate change. And then at the same time, opportunities became more apparent, right? So you had people putting deals together. Ten years ago, University of Hawaii would never think about putting solar on their campus. And that is one example, but that was the momentum. That was the shift. So across the country, actually across the world too, right? We're in Asia. You see it here. People are just more aware. China, of course, being one of the biggest energy users, also jumped on the solar bandwagon, right? So they're manufacturing panels. And so the cost of solar panels has come down over 50%. I would say it's probably 70 to 75% in the last 10 years, largely because China became more active. So three things, it sounds like, kind of came together. The effects of climate change became pretty unavoidably obvious. You know, you didn't need graphs anymore. You could just say, hey, there's, there's wildfires happening. You know, people were feeling it. And then because of that, and then also independently, there was also more and more policies, more and more, you know, not just in the U.S., Europe, China, elsewhere, climate change policies. And then lastly, because of those policies and other, you know, investments that were ongoing, the cost of renewable energy went down. Yeah. All right, let's take a break here. We've been talking to Mark Uwe, a longtime investor in real estate and energy. He started in the investment industry when it was risky business to invest in clean energy. And now he has multiple solar projects. When we come back, we're going to ask him about the future of clean energy investing and Taco Bell. Hey, did you like our new theme tune? For those in Taiwan, you'd recognize that as a remix of the Garbage Truck song. And uh, I didn't make it. Spoiler alert. There's a team. There's a team working on this show. We have producers, music people, editors. And to support that team, we need well, we need money, unfortunately. And the best way to support the show is to go to patreon.com slash waste not why not and set up monthly donations. There's also member benefits. You can suggest ideas for the show and talk with us. So going down to patreon.com slash waste not why not and become a monthly donator today. Welcome back to Waste Not, Why Not? We've been talking to real estate and energy investor Mark Uwe, managing partner at Redwood Coast Capital, based in California, and a teacher at the Kellogg School of Management. Now that solar energy has become so common and thriving and boring, what's next from here? What's the next new exciting thing? Yeah, what is this next wave? So now that solar investing is, I don't want to say becoming boring, but you know, maybe boring in a good way, that it's becoming predictable enough for banks to get involved What are you looking at? What are these new cool projects where you're going to bridge that gap? Yeah. So I think solar still has a a long way to go. But as an investor, you're making less money because now the banks are providing cheaper financing. They're providing more financing, right? Mm. And you're not going to compete against a bank, right, which typically has the lowest cost of capital or as a borrower, the lowest borrowing rate. So I think the next phase that's been interesting that has been shown to me is electric vehicle charging stations. Hmm. Okay, we need those. The trend of electric vehicles is pretty obvious now, right? So obviously Tesla set it off. Right. Cities are banning combustion engines. Yeah. It's just people like them. Yeah. They're reliable now. They're still expensive, but they're becoming cheaper. 
Not only that, you've got now things like mail delivery trucks, Amazon vehicles, you know, school buses, public buses, they're being electrified. So 10, 20 years from now, it's going to be rare that you're going to buy a normal gas-powered car. Yeah, they'll, they'll think it's abnormal. It'll be abnormal to <laughs> yeah. buy a gas-powered car, right? <laughs> yeah. But it still needs electricity to run. Right. Where are you going to charge your car? Instead of where are you going to get gas for your car, which is now a non-event? If you're lucky enough, you can charge at home. Then you go home, plug in your, your car, not a big deal. But what if you live in an apartment building, right? Mm. So you live in a 100-unit apartment building. Not everybody can put a charging port specifically for that. Right. Or you go, let's say you go on a road trip somewhere and you visit your parents who don't have an electric car. Sorry, Mark, you're just going to have to sleep in that tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's a pretty interesting opportunity that was shown to me as well, where now you can build out the fast charging electric vehicle charging station. So think mm-hmm. of it as a gas station for electric cars, right? So that is probably in the first inning of really getting developed. Mm. And uh, there are now opportunities to invest money where you just build out those. Electron stations. Electron stations, right. (laughs) And it's kind of the same principle of a gas station, right? What you want is convenience on a major area Mm. where you can go in and poop. You know, like think of it as gas, right? You don't want to drive 20 miles to go yeah. and, and wait. And then there's nothing there. And there's, or, or they're all full, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. So there's just an evolving business opportunity there. So the, the one interesting thing that was shown to me was this is a fast food chain. So this company owns one of the largest Taco Bell franchises on the West Coast. So I think there's like 200 of them. Probably consumed that at some point. Not an ad, just describing my life. I think we all have. Um, <laughs> Baja Blast. All right, Love sorry. Taco Bell. Um, I don't know if Chalupa is actually a, a real word, but... Crunchwrap Supreme is probably not. I have, but. I have ordered those before. So they have proposed... Well, starting with a small portfolio of like seven or eight Taco Bells. But we're going to put solar plus battery storage plus fast charging electric vehicle stations at, let's say, eight Taco Bells. And if that works, we can roll it out to, let's say, all 200. And what's interesting about that is that so the solar will charge the batteries, Mm -hmm. which will then charge your car. So you're charging your car using clean energy. Right. right. No, no of, concerns about the grid and gas and coal. And um, what's also funny is that from a conceptual point, it's pretty straightforward, right? People go to Taco Bell, so people who have electric cars can now just park at the Taco Bell, charge the car, go in. And the fast chargers are also a big difference because now you can charge your car in 10 or 20 minutes. Yeah. Eight hours is way too long for a Chalupa. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you need a lot of Chalupas. And look, that's just a Taco Bell. Imagine McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, whoever, Jack in the Box, all these fast food restaurants all over the country where people are now saying, hey, for the people who want to go there who have an electric car, it's like gas. It's a little more expensive, but it's Mm. convenience. Especially if you have range anxiety already. Yeah. And so what you want to do is you want to be able to, I'll call it, be an early mover to secure some of those locations, Mm. right? So you want to be in the middle of a busy intersection or next to a financial district or uh, a university or, you know, some job center or just a highly dense center, right? Mm. So it's great. It's a pretty cool opportunity. And you're solving a lot of the criticisms that people have about 
EVs and solar at the same time, right? Where are we going to have these electron stations, these gas stations for EVs? We're going to have to build out all these new ones. Well, no, it's it's just a Taco Bell. You deal with yeah. the range anxiety issue. You deal with some of the storage problems when you yeah. combine batteries. So bringing together all these different systems and creating something that's better than you know the current system, I think that's going to start to change people's minds. It's something they definitely couldn't have envisioned 10 years ago. If you're like, yeah, I'm going to go fuel up my car at the Taco Bell, yeah. they, they would have, that would have been an insane investment yeah. proposal. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. Technology keeps changing. 10 years from now, that might be the only way you can fill up your car, so to speak. So maybe it's 15 or 20 years, I don't know, but it is definitely heading that way. So can you paint a picture for us what the clean tech sector looks like now that it's coming together and these pieces are clicking into place? So there are a lot of different areas, I think, that are growing to service the clean tech sector. Certainly there are some solar panel companies, typically on the manufacturing side, they are done by big manufacturers in China. Mm. Korea has quite a lot, LG, and some in the U.S. as well. But when I see the ecosystem, so the panel just produces the energy. There is a whole list of companies that manage how that power gets transferred where you can actually use it, right? Mm. So there's a typically some sort of junction box or utility box that is attached to a solar panel system that uh, converts power, I'll call power management box. So that's another area. There's also, if you think about a solar farm, right? So everybody just thinks about the solar panels, but all those panels are mounted onto a rack. It's a steel mm. frame. But these solar farms are typically 10, 20, 50 acres, 100 acres. That's a lot of racking systems that you need that have to be dependable, that have to be able to withstand weather. Not all solar farms are flat, some of them are on a hill. So you need a mounting system for different types of climates, for different types of soil. All that is fairly new, but this is, I think, how the ecosystem is developing out. I think that's a good time to pivot to the future. What does the future look like? What does the future of clean tech investing, sustainable investing look like? Yeah, it's uh, certainly a big focal point that is impacting a lot of different areas. You know, let's start with kind of my world, the investing world. So you have very accomplished money managers who have specifically set up ESG platforms. So maybe it's not necessarily just clean energy. It's more about just the environment, social wellness and all that. Now you can find various firms that specifically have that mandate. So that was not around five years ago. Mm. Why that's important is because when more capital goes into an industry, then more deals start to show up. Positive feedback loop yeah. too. More yeah. deals, more capital, more yeah. deals, more capital exactly. becomes normal. And talent. Mm. And then talent, right? So I teach at Northwestern classes on really more like real estate technology and how technology is impacting real estate, which is a, quite a traditional industry. Mm. So not only from power generation, but there's simple things like motion sensor lights. If you're in an office, they used to just have nonstop lights were on from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. You could have 10 people in the building or 10,000, all the lights were on, right, typically. Mm. So things like motion sensor lights, now we're calling them smart buildings. Mm. But now you can do this at home too, or even uh, air conditioning or heating. Right. So now the technology is developed where you can buy a Google Nest for your house. Imagine the, just the energy savings if office buildings, hotels, any real estate took that form of energy management. 
So it's not just uh, the clean tech and sort of ESG investing becoming normalized. It's ESGs and sustainability kind of bleeding back then into other sectors and becoming normalized too. You know, how are you going to run an office complex without having sort of green building elements, without having yeah. energy efficiency elements? Yeah. You're right. That concept of a green building, what does that mean, right? Sort yeah. of, and there's lead, the different levels of green, but w- what does that really mean? And, and really the answer is, it's, you know, are you using sustainable materials? Mm. You know, how is your energy? Energy impact, right? Uh, meaning, is your insulation very good? Mm. But actually, a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, right? well, not yet, but they can listen to our other episode on green buildings in this series. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But I think all this is becoming, again, you know, as a person entering this area, these are going to provide or present job opportunities, which were not around five or 10 years ago. So for young people listening, it's both, you know, an opportunity for future investment of sort of knowing where the market's going. It's an opportunity for talent. You know, there's this need for new jobs, new career paths. What would you say to maybe a slightly younger audience? Yeah. Maybe, maybe people who are listening who are in high school or maybe freshly entering college. How could they get involved in sort of this clean energy investing? I think as a young person, the best way to just learn about the space is to work for a company that is doing something in the space, right? Mm. So you could be working for either a bank that maybe has a clean energy lending mandate. You can work for a company that I call them sort of developers, but they're the ones that are really putting the deals together, Mm. whether it's a solar deal or a battery storage deal. Investing as well. There are now, gosh, there's... I think there's a couple of public companies that focus on kind of clean energy. And even now, I think the big utilities, right? If you think about a utility, and again, I'll just go back to LADWP. Traditionally, they have used natural gas or coal facilities, maybe some hydro to produce energy to feed the city of LA. They're switching, not switching all of it, but a lot of it is now being used via clean energy, whether Mm. it's wind or solar. So again, that that would be for like an engineering guy, right? Let's Mm. say, how do I work on the clean energy team? How do you engineer various projects? Where does the grid break down? So I think there's now opportunities in in that area as well. Wherever you see them, basically. You know, if you're into engineering, find a way to kind of embed yourself into climate or sustainability through that path. If you're more interested in finance, hey, well, we laid out a lot of investing options. If you're interested in, you know, something else, there's probably a space for you because this isn't going to go away. Yeah. It's just going to keep keep growing. Yeah. And I'd probably say this is a little bit of a new industry that's still a little bit in its infancy. You have to go out and find the, the opportunities. Mm. So that's the challenge. But there's like two or three big companies. But there are a lot of middle market or mid-sized companies all over the country that do this. So mm. that's a little bit of how I got into more active investing is I was able to find and locate finding these guys or these people who are middle market folks but building their businesses. Mm. So go out there because the they're building the future and they may not be easy to find, but they're there. Yeah. You need to go be a little bit resourceful, but they are there. You just have to go. Yeah. Got to go find them. All right. Thanks, Mark, for sharing all of your insights about not only how sort of investing has changed over time and how your career is sort of, you know, went, went around clean tech investing and then dove straight into it. And now you've gone from sort of traditional solar projects and sort of commercial sectors to now moving on to some pretty complicated things, battery storage, potentially electric vehicle charging. And yeah, thanks for sharing your insights, helping us break down uh, what a clean tech investment is. My pleasure. Great to be here. And hopefully it was uh, educational and and worth it for, for your audience. 
I learned a lot. Uh, now I just need to get money. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thanks to Mark Uwe for teaching us about money and investing and solar. I learned a lot. And I think it's important to share these types of lessons because even though I work in the environment space, no one talked to me about financing or solar financing. And it's not always something that you can learn in school because things change so fast. Five years ago, solar energy was cheap. Today, solar energy is the cheapest form of energy on earth in history. The other thing that's important for people to understand is that solar today is a financial product. For better or worse, it's not about being green. This is something mainstream. This is something that the whole world's gonna have to do. And not only are they gonna have to do it, they're gonna be better off once they've done it. It's no longer a climate denier conversation. It's a technology conversation. It's a transportation conversation. It's about how you fuel up your car. We're gonna have to change the way we even talk about things. Are you gonna put fuel in your tank or are you gonna charge up your battery? What we talked about today was about solar, but it applies to many other types of renewable energy. And we're gonna see these conversations occur more and more. In the past, all of our energy came from coal. Then a lot of our energy is now coming from gas. In the future, we're gonna have a diversified energy mix. We'll have solar, we'll have batteries, we'll have wind, we'll have tidal, we'll have geothermal, maybe even hydrogen, maybe even stuff we don't know about yet. But these fundamental principles about financing renewable energy projects, about costs that may not intuitively go into these types of proposals, these are things that help us think through how to approach energy in the future and design more resilient systems. That's it for today. Thanks again for listening all the way to the end. In the next episode, we go to a secret lab and learn all about corals. And to prep you for the next episode, go back, all the way back, to episode four of Waste Not Why Not for a refresher on corals and coral murder. Actually, tell you what, we'll send you a re-up right to your feed so you don't have to scroll down. Episode four right there for you. I'm Nature Nate. This is Waste Not, Why Not, a Ghost Island media production based in Taipei, Taiwan. Emily Wai Wu is our producer and story editor. Yu Chen is our audio editor. Gerald Williams is our intern. And new theme tune produced by Dak Chang. New show logo by Southwick Graphics. This episode was done in collaboration with the American Institute in Taiwan. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.